Short Lending Era, the podcast where we dive into the world of residential business and commercial finance, bringing you expert insight, tips and strategies to help you navigate the intricate landscape of lending in Australia. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica, and in today's episode, we are joined by two very special guests, uh, as well as Trilogy's office dad, David Thomas. Hi, Jess. How are you? Hey, Dave. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Very Excited well. to be here? Yeah, different show this week, so we're mixing up a bit. We're missing hope and we've got two other faces, so not that you can see this is an audio format, but here we go. <laughs> First off, joining us today, we are very blessed to have uh, two of Canberra's most knowledgeable individuals in the space of property law, although they will not let me say it. They are experts in the field, <laughs> well and truly. Firstly, we have associate property lawyer, Ruby Holloway. Thanks, Jess. Nice to be here. Nice, nice to have you, Ruby. <laughs> and secondly, uh, but definitely no less, an expert in all things property. We have senior property conveyancer, Ida Lamb. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having us. You're so excited to be <laughs> here, girls. I can feel the nerves in the room. <laughs> Let's all just take a deep breath because, you know, if Dave can do it, anyone can. That's true. <laughs> Beautiful. So what we're going to talk about today are just a few things in relation to Canberra property contracts because we know, although we are surrounded by the beautiful state of New South Wales, the contracts differ so significantly. Um, and generally speaking, a lot of our clients don't really notice that until it does come time to buy a property. And then there's a bit of an oh shit moment <laughs> going on. Yep, correct. So let's uh, kick it off with what are the key elements that differ between New South Wales and Canberra property contracts? For me, I think a, a massive difference is penalties. It's industry yep. practice for New South Wales contracts to charge penalties immediately yep. um, if you don't settle on time. ACT, most contracts still enjoy a seven-day grace period. So from a buyer's perspective, I think that's probably a key difference for me um, from a very practical day-to-day -day, yeah, um, kind of a difference. Yeah, I would agree with that. The main thing for me would be from a due diligence perspective, you're buying a house here in the ACT, it comes with building pest compliance reports. In mm -hmm. uh, New South Wales, it's entirely on the purchaser to find that information out themselves. Um, and unfortunately, if people don't know that, they sometimes buy it before they realise it's well, got underlying issues. We get this all the time. So we all have someone who'll be looking at buying, you know, maybe an area in Tuggeranong, mm -hmm. and they're just so used to asking an agent to get a contract. And then at the back of the contract, there's the full building and pest and EER. And then, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they're thinking, oh, well, now I want to buy in Jerobombra or Queanbeyan. And they call us back and say, well, I've asked the agent for the contract and half of it's missing. And you're like, well, what half of it's missing? And they're like, well, there's no building, there's no pest, there's no... And you're yeah. like, no, 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 that's just the difference in the ACT contract to the New South Wales contract. So it happens well, with clients all the time. It's also important to note um, a building and pest report in ACT, if you order a building and pest report in the New South Wales area, they don't include a compliance part of the report. Yeah, OK. So things like um, building certifications, um, final occupation certificates, they're not necessarily going to be included in the report, even if you go and buy one in New South Wales. Um, you'll need to get the building file inspected as well. So that's also something oh my that... goodness. There we go. I've just learnt something after 20 years. Not <laughs> <laughs> shocking, to be fair. We do have experts in the room. I love that phrase. I know you two are just like, stop it, this is cringy. <laughs> now, what is the legal requirement to actually have a contract within the ACT? Why do we need them on a transaction? So from a legal perspective, any transfer involving property, yeah. um, whether it's you're selling somebody your house or somebody a car space in the city, yeah. um, it needs to be an in-writing agreement. Um, we then have legislation that puts out exactly what that agreement should include, which is where we get the basis for all of our contracts. For residential property, um, 
which is what a lot of people deal with, I guess, more transactionally. Yeah. There are a whole list of very, like, strict required documents and information that needs to be contained. Yeah. Wow. So they just have to be done. It's a non-negotiable, unless I guess it's a favourable transfer, in which case you would do a different... Yeah, look, if you've got, for example, family members, like parents transferring to a kid or something similar, you can get around having um, not having to have a full contract. You can yeah. just do a transfer. Um, but in those situations, it is usually best to get some kind of legal advice on what you're actually transferring because you don't have any of the built-in protections that a contract would include. Yeah, so the bits and pieces that most clients usually focus on when they look at a contract is usually, you know, when do I, A, when do I need to exchange the contract, B... What, what kind of goods and shackles are tied to it? Do I get the dishwasher? Do I get the built-in fridge? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. What other bits and pieces are usually your, your focus points in an ACT contract? Um, I have a close look at the special conditions. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably one key component um, because it's important from a buyer's perspective to understand what the special conditions do and how they change um, their rights and ob obligations under the contract. A seller usually drafts a contract in the ACT, so a seller typically drafts a contract that's a little bit more in their favour. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> if, the seller is, if the seller solicitor has... Um, in their ordinary practice, if that's what they do, including these special conditions. So it's important to check those carefully. Um, if a buyer is purchasing a unit, I look at body corporate documents, which are required documents in ACT and not so much in New South Wales. Yeah. Um, and I do have a look at, I guess, all the required documents deserve a skim in terms of what they include and um, how they differ to other properties and what might be... Um, required knowledge for a person that's considering purchasing the property. So on the body corp thing, because we're obviously yeah. Canberra, full of units, yeah. um, so body corp, you know, sale purchases would happen all the time. What are the key things that we're looking for in those body corp notes? So the first thing we always look at is how much you're paying in levies. Um, everybody's got the usual administrative fund and sinking fund. Um, we always want to make sure that there's no special levies on top of that or if there are what are they for? Where is it up to? For the same reason, we go through the minutes. Yep. ACT contract, you've got two years' worth of minutes contained in your contract. It is possible um, to get an inspection done of the whole records if you choose to. It's something we usually recommend to clients. Um, but that gives you the full picture of what you're buying. It looks at lifestyle issues. It looks at noise complaints. It not just the finances, but actually how it's running on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, because we've seen clients that have, you know, gone through this process and gone through this process with you, Marianne, <laughs> where when they um, get to that that detail of looking through those the last two years' worth of body corp notes, yeah, they find out that, you know, the person in unit one's got a barking dog and, you know, there's there's issues with, I don't know, trash collection or, you know, all the the, the kind of running, you know, bits and pieces of the building. But also that's where we find, you know, um, notes about, you know, leaking roofs and water issues and, you know, how many times, you know, maintenance has been done on certain aspects of the building and, you know, if the pool pump's broken or how often the pool pump breaks and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. That's all buried in that information, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So which I think when you're buying potentially a unit gives you much more information than what you get when you're buying a house. Like imagine if you bought a house and there was detailed notes for the last two years about every conversation they'd had with a neighbour or who did the fence. <laughs> yeah, or, or even just repair and maintenance. Yeah, the last two years log of repair and maintenance to your house. Like that would be really good information. But yeah. it does exist on a unit but not on a house. Yeah, and that's the good thing about Canberra because I know our clients who purchase in Queensland, for example, 
that's kind of independent inspection. Like you go and you have a read of those 120 pages and Google what every acronym means because I know I wouldn't have an idea. Yeah. And I wouldn't have any kind of brain focus in the middle of purchasing to take two hours to do that. Yeah. And you could pay someone to do that. And just touching on something you said before, special conditions. What do vendors bury in a special condition that a client should be aware of? Tell us their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think in terms of special conditions, things like some, some firms do take away, for example, the grace period. Some firms remove the, um, the right for the additional administrative penalty to be, only, um, to be payable by both sides. So it's usually only payable if a buyer's in default. So only the seller can charge that yep. administrative cost for the additional legal costs they incur. Um, there are some warranties that may be taken out to special conditions. Um, there are things like death and, in, death and incapacity clauses. So if a, either party or perhaps just a buyer, one of them should one of them pass away or mm -hmm. lose capacity, then sometimes only the seller has the right to rescind or either party might have the right to rescind. Things like keys. Yep. something that mm. buyers care about. Keys um, is a big one. Yep, so if buyers go in and do an inspection and collect keys um, on the day of settlement, they expect to receive a whole full set of keys. Yeah. Most contracts these days will have a special condition in there that ultimately provides um, uh, uh, the condition that a seller's not obligated to provide all the keys. That they just require to provide keys that they actually have in their possession. So um, buyers do get a surprise and they refuse to settle because they don't have to see all the keys or they kick yeah. up a fuss. So it's important to understand those conditions. Yeah, okay. That happened to us. We didn't have keys for the windows. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so we didn't have the keys for the upstairs windows, which is fine because how often do you open them? But still, it means that they can never be locked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if anyone wants to break into my house, it's like 20 metres above the ground. But if you can do it. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. <laughs> now let's talk about what kind of due diligence needs to be done with a Canberra property contract. I know we've touched on a few things that differ state to state, but what are the main items of due diligence? The quick summary would be <laughs> finance. Um, yep. Talk to a broker or your bank to get your finance approval. Talk to your conveyancer or your lawyer to yep. have a review of the contract. And from a buyer perspective personally, like outside of experts, um, have a read through your building and pest reports if you've got access to them. Have a read through the minutes that are in the contract if you are purchasing a unit. You need to be satisfied when you go into this contract yeah. that the unit you're buying or the house you're buying is what you actually want. Um, you can rely on the sort of expert um, assistance with your finance and the legal side of things, um, but a lot of it is you need to be comfortable with what's actually in these documents that you're getting advice on. Yeah, that's true. Because you can only provide advice if their comfort level is there to take the advice. Yeah. yeah. And look, sometimes we will find things and people think, oh, I'm actually no longer comfortable with this property. And that happens, but it's relatively rare. But if you have a chance to look at your building report first, it's not going to be a surprise if I say to you, your whole garage is an unapproved structure. Are you sure? <laughs> You're there <laughs> like, do I make the phone call? Do they already know? Yeah. Because when you are talking about established property, no established property is perfect. Right? No, so everything in Canberra's got an unapproved Something. Something, yeah. yeah. So, and, and I think that's the, that's the key. It's getting a level of comfort that you're happy as a, as a buyer to accept. Um, quite often we, you know, find first home buyers. Mm. First home buyers have only ever, you know, their last purchase was a brand new car and that was perfect. Mm. And then they're buying a 30-year-old house and they're expecting that to be perfect as well. And quite often we'll have conversations with them and they'll go, oh, I've gone cold on that one. And you're like, oh, what did you go cold on that one? Oh, the Pergola was unapproved. And I'm like, well, if it was in Tuggeranong and it 
it, it was built in the 1990s, chances are it's got an unapproved goal. <laughs> chances are it's got an unapproved tin garage out yeah. the back. Chances yeah. are, like, so there's a lot of unapproved structures um, with properties in Canberra, and there's, you know, not everything's perfect. You know, there's going to be, they'll say, oh, you know, I found out there was an easement that ran across the back fence. It's like, well, yeah. mate, 80% of properties have an easement that runs across the back fence or down the side. So it's not always perfect, so long as you understand, you know, what's unapproved, you know, where the easements are and, you know, and you're comfortable with all that, well, then you can proceed, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't look for perfection in a 40-year-old house. You know? no. so, yeah, they're not all going to have an ER of six, <laughs> you know. Oh, I do love it, though, when clients have an unapproved structure in the backyard and they want a quick discount, like 10 grand off the pergola because it's not approved. Shouldn't be there. I do love that. Sorry. Pull the pergola down. Yeah. Like, oh, we don't even want it. You're like, oh, God, the pergola's gone. Now let's chat a little bit about what um, conditions you typically see apply when a contract is terminated or, or how do these generally come about whereby a contract is terminated in Canberra? Would I'll be honest. <laughs> um, in the years that I've been doing this, I don't think I've ever terminated yeah. a contract um, or had a client have their contract terminated. Um, I think in that particular situation where there there is a right to terminate, yeah. parties usually come to an agreement or negotiate the terms and we typically um, negotiate terms of a rescission, um, which enables a buyer to kind of limit and um, cap their loss um, in terms of repercussions of a natural termination instead. Yes, okay. Um, so if you're asking about the grounds of, of why someone um, would have their contract terminated, Typically, inability to finance it, yeah, yeah. not enough funds. Yeah. That's probably one of the more common ones um, for off-the-plan contracts. Breach of an essential term in the contract, meaning that you haven't paid that deposit instalment that you wow. should have paid two months ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> those are probably my key ones in my experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, so just really, can I get the money in order to make the purchase, which is probably where we come in. In a timely manner. In a timely manner. And, yep. yeah, and following the obligations under the contract, paying deposits on time and, and things yeah. like that. And, and, look, like Ida said, if, if we do have clients who find themselves in the position where we may not have the money or we've had a change of employment or the pre-approval's expired, whatever the situation is, our first instance is always to try and negotiate something that's not yeah. an ultimate termination of the contract. Yeah. Um, most of the time in property, people want the same overall outcome, whether it's the transfer of the property or everybody just wants to walk away at this point, right, depending where you're up to. Um, so whoever you engage, conveyance a solicitor, almost everyone in the industry will say we want to do something else other than result in a termination. Yeah. Well, everyone starts from the ground again, don't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. You're right. It's one of the few scenarios legally where everyone's working towards the same goal rather than a separation where you've got two people fighting for the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, use it to your advantage. And what would the typical dispute resolution process be for contracts within the ACT? I know you've both just touched on that a little bit, but typically is it just working towards a resolution rather than kind of anything being the be-all and end-all today? Well... Let's backtrack a little bit, I guess. Let's import, it's important to highlight the difference between what a rescission and a termination is. Yes. So a rescission ultimately means that it's a no-blame game in the sense that parties can both exit, walk away. Mm -hmm. Termination isn't so sunshine lollipops. Termination yeah. means that the buyer's going to get penalised, they'll lose their 10% deposit, yeah. and if the seller can't sell that property for the same price or more, then that difference in sale price can be um, paid in liquidated damages 
by the buyer. Yep. So when you think about it from a buyer's perspective, even if you only pay 5% on exchange, so deposit by instalments, the seller can still pursue you for the balance of the 10. Now, when you look at it in a, in a dispute resolution context, if a buyer only realistically has 5% that they've paid, you're not going to waste legal costs to pursue them for the balance of 10. No. So you've got to look at it from a seller's perspective, a realistic and a more practical approach in terms of what can I do, what can I get to have completely not wasted my time, and what should I do to walk away and sell to somebody else and just get rid of the property and have a successful completion. So I think that drives the dispute resolution process in terms of these kind of disputes. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily like a conflict resolution team no. that deals with <laughs> property transactions falling over. No. Um, I think it's pretty much up to conveyors and solicitors that act for either party to be sensible in their discussion and propose some realistic solutions for both parties to overcome it and move on. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we've definitely, David and I have had clients with contracts rescinded, um, but thankfully we've never had a full-on termination. No, no, we never have. We get it, it organised. And if it is rescinded, it was, I remember there was a big wave only maybe 24 months ago with the off the plans, everything yes, getting rescinded. You know, yes. we had lots of families who called us at like six o'clock on a Saturday night <laughs> saying they just got the email, which is terrible, but... Again, it's still something that they can work towards buying because they got their money back. Yeah. Which and is it, the main thing. So with that kind of, when you're talking about, you know, rescinding a contract and negotiating with the other side, um, how does that typically take place? Because I, I would imagine that, you know, the ones that I have been part of, the mm. the um, the buyer is really looking for some guidance. And they're like, well, who do, I, who do I talk to first? Do I talk to the agent about my issues? Do I talk to my solicitor about the issues? You know, who, who do I go to first? What, what do you usually say? Leave so the agent look, out of for, it, come to us? Or? <laughs> no, look, for, from our perspective, if, if we've got clients who think they either will be or are expecting to be in this situation, we always ask them to tell us first. Um, primarily from the basis that everything our clients tell us is confidential, right? So even if they tell us we think this is going to be a problem but it doesn't eventuate, we're not about to go and tell the other side beforehand, hey, <laughs> we think <laughs> this might be something that happens in the future. Um, in terms of how it actually works in terms of negotiating, pretty much everything is recorded in writing, um, initially in terms of um, email and terms. Um, conversation with our clients will be phone, email, whatever their preference is, in-person meetings, we're pretty flexible that way. At the end of the day, once terms are actually agreed, there's our preference is to actually create a standalone legal document that contains the rescission that everybody signs. Yeah. That way that going forward, there's no chance of somebody coming back and saying, oh, I never agreed to this or, oh, I actually want to sue you for something further because everyone said, look, this is what we've agreed, this is how it's ended, and now everyone's walking away. Yeah, okay. That's a pretty smart way to do it, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. we've done it. You've done it a few times. So. I was going to say this is definitely not like a textbook thing. This is something they've done in practice for sure. Yeah, so dozens it, of times over, I can imagine. So the <laughs> the end outcome that document is on a case by case basis, depending on who the seller is, what their goals are, who the buyer is, what they yeah, can correct. do, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay. That's some hope for people out there that are yeah. struggling with contracts. <laughs> There's a, there's a glimmer of hope. It's very small, but it's a glimmer. Glimmer. You know what? That's how big the stars are when we look at them. Yeah. It's so inspirational, isn't it? I feel like in the doom and gloom, we should say most contracts don't end up in this oh, situation. No. Truly, I think I'm gonna, I've been with Trilogy for five years, handled a few hundred transactions, and I think we've had two with rescissions, and they were both within two weeks of each other by the same property group. So we knew the next one was coming, to be fair, so we were prepared. 
Dave had his like bad news face ready. <laughs> now we did ask some of our clients to send us in some questions because we knew we had the two of you coming and we let them know. We didn't say names. We just said two experts. Again, that's the title we used. So these are going to be three questions. Um, they may seem a little bit mundane for your expertise. I am sorry. But first off, the most common thing was, can you insert a finance clause in an ACT property contract? Oh. We get this question a lot. <laughs> That's why we got it, I assume. <laughs> Look, realistically, the answer is no. Like, you can put anything into a contract. And if you have a, just a very generous seller, sure, you may end up with a subject to finance condition. But for 99% of the time, contracts in the ACT are unconditional in exchange. The assumption is that you have sorted out your finance before you lock yourself into the contract. That unfortunately includes off the plan type contracts where, you know, you might exchange on something now and it's not finished construction until 2026, 2027. Um, it's exactly the same. Come 2026, 2027, you'll need to start looking at your finance approval. Yeah. Um, generally in the ACT, especially if you're buying private treaty, most sellers will give you the time mm. to get your unconditional approval. I mean, you guys know if we've got a yeah. mutual client, one of the first things we'll say is where are we up to with the finance yeah. approval before we do anything with the contract. 100%. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Second one, what process is involved in removing a caveat over a property in the ACT? What a loaded question. <laughs> oh, that's a very loaded question, um, especially since... Um, we've moved towards electronic conveyancing yep. and we're finally on PEXA, which is very exciting news for the ACT. Yes, we've finally made it. However, I guess the biggest shortcoming of the ACT PEXA system is it doesn't allow you to register caveats and also register withdrawals, which is the instrument that you need to register to remove the caveat. Yep. So it also depends on the type of caveat that you're dealing with. There's, of course, a caveat that a buyer may lodge over the property to protect their interest that they've now acquired by entering into a contract so that if anyone else decides to look into the property, they, they can see that the buyer has an interest over the property. Um, those types of caveats, an actual withdrawal is just simply provided by the buyer on, on settlement to remove the caveat to, to enable the bank to register a transfer and to remove the discharge of mortgage. There are other caveats as well, like I mean, if there's outstanding debt from somebody else where they want to protect their um, caveatable interest, um, they might register one over the title. What other caveats are there? Caveats to protect life interests in a deceased estate. Yeah. We see those on there too. Um, so it really depends on the type of caveat, but I think the, the most common caveat is a, probably a buyer's caveat where they've just entered into a contract with a seller and they'd like to protect the interest from that time period from the date of contract up until settlement. Yeah. Which that sounds reasonable. And look, seeing a caveat on the title shouldn't be an automatic concern Red flag. To, to a buyer. That's, that's a good um, point. Uh, and they are scary. And if you Google, you know, what is a caveat, it sounds really scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but check with your conveyancer or your solicitor or even the agent sometimes, if it's particular, if it's a life interest, the agent often has that information just to kind of know what it is because there's a big difference between a caveat that's been put down as part of a litigation dispute that's way outside the sale of the property yeah. versus a caveat for a life interest, for example, that's going to come off as part of the settlement. The transfer, so. anyway. Yeah. yeah. So with that one that you just touched on where it, you know, it involves some other litigation mm -hmm. thing, typically is that caveat cleared with the proceeds of the sale? Like it, it definitely, it's going to be gone before you it's, get the house. The good lawyer answer is it depends, right? <laughs> Everything is an it depends. Maybe. 
Uh, generally, if there is a caveat like that on the title, there'll also be a special condition that says this caveat exists, the seller is going to deal with it, and this kind of money is being paid to the caveat, or they will sort out whatever is required for this caveat as part of the settlement right. process. So it's generally not a, a red flag, but it is worth just noting when we always raise it with our clients as well if we see it on there. We get instructions to make further inquiries with the other yeah. side as to the nature of why the caveat was registered and based on, I guess, the information that we receive, we're able to advise the client at that, yeah, yeah. accordingly yeah. at that yeah. stage. Third and final one, which is something that this was actually probably the second most popular, but I put it third just because I liked it last. <laughs> strong finish. Yeah, it's a strong finish. Now, the ACT uses the method of leasehold, which differs from the traditional freehold that we see in most states. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, I'll let you take this one. I'll answer this one. So from a practical perspective, every day, it does not matter. Um, when you When you own a property in Canberra, um, you can build on it, you can plant your garden, you know, you can live in your property. F the way it works, I guess, in the background from a legal perspective is you have a 99-year lease <laughs> from the ACT government yep. and the ACT government uses that to essentially assist with zoning. So they say, look, we're going to use this as residential area or you can only build a single house on these blocks. You can't build multi-storey apartments mm. or townhouses on this block. That's generally what they use it for. It also allows them to put in things like maintenance requirements. You know, if you own a block of land and you let it get absolutely overgrown and derelict, the ACT government can issue you a notice under the terms that at least to say, hey, you need to tidy this up. Yeah. You know, you, you can't just leave it like that. Um, when you get to the end of your 99 years, you can apply to renew that for a further 99 years. At that stage, the ACT government will review the block and say, do we need this for a public purpose? Look, if you're for residential property in particular, very, very rare that the answer will be yes. If they don't need it for public purpose, you then get your renewed 99 years. So I guess it's more of a almost an administration thing in the background with how the ACT government uses it to manage the city. Um, but if you're moving into your house, you treat it exactly the same as if you owned it freehold. Mm. So I know we had a client who purchased with I think like 39 years left. And we're like, we're not going to be 60 by the time this is up. Like, we're going to need a new house. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, that's a valid point. But I'm fairly certain this house in Higgins is fine. Yeah. Like, maybe it's not. No. And, and look, we are at the stage now where there are renewals starting to come through yeah. um, for these crown leases. Um, and look, if the ACT government needed your land for a public purpose, um, you're going to know about it before you get to year 97. Yeah, they'd give you a few uh, and they... warnings, surely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, we were thinking about this when we were doing the questions the other day. And the only time we've ever seen real questions being asked about the, the lease and the lease mm. term is not typically for a normal house. It's usually for a, a house or a property that is in a really random location. Like we've got one that you can clearly see it's earmarked and they are going to move a road through it in the next 30 years. And and that property was earmarked, you know, by the lender that, well, this one, you know, might be a bit different. Um, but it had a very short lease left on it. Um, and, and the owners knew pretty square that their property was right where a highway could go. So, yeah. <laughs> like, common sense has to be used sometimes in these things. Yeah, correct. So. Okay, well, I think we've wrapped it up. Yeah, Brilliant. there we go. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ruby and Ida, for joining us here in the Your Lending Era studios today. It was great to have you both here. You had fun? 
Yeah, so much. Thanks so much. We're shaking. You can't even see it. Now, please tell our listeners how they can find you and access your services. Uh, Me again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we are online as uh, balawyers.com.au. That website actually has access to our individual emails, phone numbers, as well as general reception and the rest of our team. The firm does offer services outside of property. Um, but obviously, if you're looking for us in particular, <laughs> we'll be under the property heading. Oh, I can say from experience, sadly, that Bradley, Ellen, Love deal with literally everything. Like you call reception, you just ask the stupidest question. Like, yeah, we know someone who can do that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, thank you, bye. But you call, you know, another firm that may only do property and you've kind of shut. Whereas if you need to do estate, wills, litigation... Do it all in the one place. One-stop shop. And they've got a lovely bathroom on their their reception (laughs) level. I I sent Nicole a photo. I was so impressed by the bathroom, which is really, that says how poor I am. (laughs) I thought, wow, what a bathroom. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks again, ladies, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, As always, we will put uh, Ruby and Ida and Bradley Owen Love in particular's details in the show notes so you can go through and find them. Easy done. Cheerio, guys. Nice. Thanks, Thanks, Jess. Thank you.